the Endurance Asia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Welcome back to the Endurance Asia podcast. This is episode 75 and we are joined by none other than Mr. Mark Agnew of SCMP fame. Of the, he, he used to run the adventure section on the SCMP, a real contributor and uh, and collaborator with the uh, the trail and adventure community in Hong Kong and across Asia. He's also notable for becoming one of the very first people to cross the Northwest Passage, traveling from Greenland all the way uh, through uh, through to Canada uh, uh, as the very first person to do it along with his team, the Arctic Cowboys, um, uh, with human on human power by uh, kayaking through through that section. And um, it was just an incredible performance and expedition and uh, adventure feat. Uh, and I love covering these uh, these kind of expeditions. It really does sort of capture the imagination. And um, he's been planning this for many, many years, as he talks about. And um, very proud of him. Uh, like such a great guy, and you know has been such a big contributor to the uh, the Asia uh, endurance and uh, adventure community for for many years in his role at SCMP. So with that, here is Mr. Mark Agnew. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Mr. Mark Agnew, welcome back onto the Endurance Asia podcast. Three years since uh, since you were last on, and two weeks, two and a half weeks since you finished uh, a world first, um, uh, doing the Northwest Passage along with the uh, the Arctic. Cowboys, congratulations, sir. How are you feeling? Yeah, great. When you say, you know, it's three years since I was last on the podcast, you know, uh, here talking about prepping for it, it reminds me how long it really, really took, you know, years in the making. Uh, it, uh, I didn't realize that it'd been that long since I was on here, like, promoting myself, saying, oh, we're about to do the Northwest Passage, then it was delayed, and then there was so many nightmare twists and turns that uh, when the expedition took 103 days, but it really took like years i, I first yeah. spoke about the northwest passage to somebody in 2016 seven years ago almost eight it's almost a quarter of my life that you've been obsessing about this uh yes yeah. this, this one I, I remember it was a it was a book was it like eat my boots or something or yeah, the, like, man, the man who ate his boots the man so that was that one of the first times that you really sort of got the knew the concept of the northwest passage and uh yeah well um, I, i'm I'm not sure which happened first. So I, I was trying to, 2016 was my first Atlantic rowing attempt. And yeah. the first introduction, like for, like that I could be through these big adventures. And that's when I started Googling around it and getting more and more into the ocean rowing community. And I saw that somebody was planning to do the Northwest Passage. Um, and I was obsessed with like these old stories of polar exploration. And maybe I wasn't so familiar with the Northwest Passage, but something about it caught my imagination. So that provoked me to read the book um yeah. the uh the man who ate his boots which is about 
the whole history of it, the the title is about John Franklin who who had to eat his boots when they almost start when they almost start. Um, and uh, and that was like wow, I could be like part of this um, lineage, this story, uh, part of it, uh, a final chapter, as it were. And uh, and became absolutely obsessed. And even my Atlantic record attempts, although they were like in and of themselves aims, they were also for me. I was considering them like a step, a qualification, stepping yeah. stone to be like considered to part of somebody's um, Northwest Passage team. Well, yeah, it has been three years. It was August 2020. We were still in the midst of kind of COVID at that time. But you had planned at that point, you were planning towards a 2021. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was an actual, your, the original plan was a much was a bigger group but actually to row the northwest passage was the yeah. original plan right and that's going from yeah. greenland all the way to canada yeah yeah so well that guy who um post that that guy who i came across who wanted to row it that was the person i ended up with in the initial team and uh yeah they wanted to go from pond inlet which is round about where we started anyway all the way to point barrow on the top of alaska because that's how the guinness book of records define the northwest passage which yeah. is a completely arbitrary definition of the northwest passage like that, that that wasn't the route we ended up doing. I, I didn't go with that team in the end. They still started. They started. Uh, at, they, we were basically in a race against them because we were going for two world firsts. The first to kayak it, which obviously they weren't going for, but also the first to do it under human power with no motors or sails. So there were three teams this year going for that. Us, the, the original team that I was with, and another rowing team who were starting and going the opposite direction from us. And there have been many teams in the last decade who have tried to, to get this human powered record, either by kayak or rowing boat. So um, we were, and um, I guess, well, we're the only ones who finished. But uh, so it was a good idea to switch teams in the end. But uh, and even even that team who um, I was originally with, who wanted to finish at Point Barrow, they changed their plan at the last minute to finish in the same place as us. Um, so which is clearly the definition of the Northwest Passage. The Canadian government define it as Baffin Bay to Beaufort Sea uh, rather than Baffin Bay all the way to Point Barrow, which is just completely random. Um, yeah. Um, does, yes, a, so, does Guinness World Records, are they actually going to recognise it as a... Um, as a, a well, as a no, record? I mean, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, Guinness is, is... I don't really... I don't I don't put much, like, stock in Guinness. Like, there are yeah. quite a random, like... Uh, imagine the governing body who are the arbitrators of how many cigarettes you can fit in your mouth and also the maritime definition of the Northwest Passage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, actually qualified it, to, uh, to really, yeah. Uh, to, yeah. So, so the Canadian government judge it as uh, Baffin Bay to Beaufort Sea. When Amiston became the first person to go all the way through the Northwest Passage, this moment he passed into the Beaufort Sea at Cape Bradhurst, he said, I've done it. I've become the first person to do the, the, uh, the Northwest Passage. And everybody recognises Amiston as the original. Um, the old explorers, when they wrote in their diaries that they were leaving Baffin Bay or entering, they'd say, I've now entered the Northwest Passage. Let us hope that we find the other end. Um, and then um, Guinness have just picked another random spot about 300 miles further along and said, it's here. We're like, what? <laughs> I could understand another definition where, because it's the, the route from the Atlantic to the Pacific, some sailors say you have to leave the Atlantic and enter the Pacific going from like in across the Arctic circle at both ends, which um, because it's like a concept rather than like a specific route, um, I could understand that. But Guinness's definition is just 
I don't know where they've got it from. Um, and it's just utterly like nonsense, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, twenty twenty one, you uh, you that did did the team actually try in twenty twenty one? I know that you the the actual Arctic Cowboys did actually attempt in twenty twenty two, right? So, um, yeah. When did you actually decide to sort of to to join that team? Uh, so my, uh, the rowing team didn't attempt it before. The, uh, they needed to get the boats from Scotland to the Arctic, and uh, um, oh, that, that was when the shipping crisis is all around the world—an absolute nightmare as well. Well, yeah, right. I think it was as much a money issue; they couldn't afford it, and um, yeah. which uh, struck me as bizarre, given the amount of money that we'd raised. Um, so, um, yeah, and the the Arctic Cowboys tried in 2022 in solo kayaks, and they didn't get very far—only a couple of hundred miles—and um, they thought that many of the problems they had they could solve by being in a tandem kayak carrying more food more stability despite yeah. having like kit on the on the deck in particular um which uh, would allow them to have a bigger margin for time and with that in mind they needed more crew members so they posted on facebook you know apply here and um that was uh, <laughs> um, end of 2022 start of 2023 and i uh, i threw my hat in the ring had a call with them explained that i'd been trying this for years and uh that uh a lot of my friends and the original people who were part of the rowing team had also dropped out. So uh, I, I was in sort of a bit of no man's land. And um, yeah, and they accepted me on board, which was, you know, crazy because I wasn't really, I had done kayaking, but everybody else who applied, I'm sure, was like an ultra kayak marathon champion. And then I was sort of background in rowing, but uh, not a bit of kayaking. And uh, I guess the transferable skill was like the, ability to suffer for a great length of time but maybe but the dip but the big thing difference in kayaking and rowing is it's quite easy to get like proficient at rowing uh ocean rowing you know if you want to be a river rower it's about like one the, the top one or two percent your technique being perfect everybody being in line but ocean rowing because there's so much movement in the water it's just about being like proficient and the boats are so big that they're stable it sort of looks after you you don't need like that much skill per se but a kayak is yeah. it's a skill like um you need to be good to be fast you need to be um experienced to be stable you need to experience different conditions to land and, and surf and etc so um that that was the big problem for me and uh <laughs> I needed to get up to scratch like without much notice and so how did you get up to scratch what kind of training did you go through uh, so I firstly I messaged a guy called Ollie Hicks, who I'd run, once done a story on for the South China Morning Post. He'd kayaked all the way from Greenland to Scotland to prove that uh, Inuit had done it in the in the eighteenth uh, century, and um, he put me onto a guy called Jeff Allen, who runs this expedition kayaking course in Cornwall. And I went down with him, and you know what what would I what was I expecting was sort of. Um, right, you're going to be kayaking 20, 30, 40 miles every day. So let's go kayak 40 miles and see if you're up for it. But instead, he just put me in the breaking surf with the all the surfers. And um, while all the surfers were catching the waves towards shore and then coming back out, I just did the same. He said, land, he'd take, you know, surf the waves to shore, then come back out through the breaking waves, then surf the waves to shore and come out back to breaking through the breaking waves over and over again, 9 to 5 a.m. on the Saturday, then the Sunday. And I came back again and did it again. And that was, was savage. It was so much more difficult than um, yeah. just paddling. It was more anaerobic. My shoulders were burning. And initially, I was capsizing every single time. By the end of the weekend, I could surf waves. And uh, and um, 
uh, and th- he was like, these are the worst conditions you'll get. If I can get you proficient in these, then you'll be safe. Uh, rather hard, than any- race easy. Yeah, rather than anything to do with like speed and technique. Um, yeah. And uh, which made me safe enough to go to the Northwest Passage and not put myself or anyone else in danger. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the big, the big shortcoming was, you know, these guys are ultra champion kayakers. And yeah. on day one, my kayak was significantly slower than the other kayak, clearly because of me. And uh, I was like, oh, no, I'm there. I've been totally naive here. But um, yeah, just that was active. on the first day you realized that actually. Yeah, you know- and I was like, oh, no. And everybody was sort of looking sideways at me and trying not to make me feel bad. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's fine. I'm sure you'll speed up. And I was like, how naive have I been? I think I could just come to the Arctic and match like some of the best. You know, Eileen had won like the Yukong River Quest, which is a famous race. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just come along and be the same speed as her. Um, but uh, I did improve very quickly. Everybody, I think everybody said, yeah, in a couple of weeks, you'll be fine. And within a couple of days, uh, uh, West and Jeff were like, wow, we're amazed for how quickly you've improved, which was which was great. But there was always a discrepancy in speed. West and Jeff in their kayak uh, often had to... Uh, you know, match our pace rather than uh, us matching them, which was, which I'm sure required a lot of patience. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, like, how did you, did you get to tra- train with them at all? I suppose you didn't. I literally like, didn't, didn't even meet them. Until you got to the start in Greenland, yeah. right? Yeah, because it was so late that I joined the team and I just, yeah. um, I'd lost so much money on the rowing expedition and uh, this was costing money too. I couldn't uh, afford to fly to Texas and I have a kid and my wife's pregnant. So like going to Texas for a week was uh, then going for four months in the Arctic just felt like a step too far. So I just never met them and uh, just turned up in Canada like, hi, nice to meet you. Let's get along. (laughs) So so you got out there in, in you, you started the expedition in July. Yeah. So, well, uh, when we started, I guess you can define it in two, in two ways. Um, so the area, we were, we were going to start from Baffin Bay. Um, so we were in a place called Pond Inlet. Baffin, the border of Baffin Bay was like 40 miles away. So we got um, towed out by Skidoos to Baffin Bay and then tried to start the next day. And there was a lot of sea ice in the water. And we uh, kayaked out. And in our naivety, we sort of thought, right, we'll get past the sea ice. Then we'll track it parallel to shore all the way across. And we'll then break back through the sea ice. We'll get around it and camp on shore and continue on the journey. We got out onto the other side of the sea ice and uh, kayaked and kayaked, and it sort of was like weaving its way further and further and further offshore. Now, after a few hours, we were like, we don't know how far this goes. You know, we could end up trying to go around it and be 50 miles offshore. Um, let's go back. And we went back, but it all moved south, so we couldn't actually even get back to land. So we were kayaking further and further and further south. There'd be lots of right turns, and we'd think, right, this right turn will take us back to land, and we'd turn right. And it would just be, it'd be more ice. And uh, it was so disorientating. The ice completely ruined perspective. At one point, I saw like four polar bears just sitting on the top of ice. I was like, oh, my God, we're cutting straight towards four polar bears. They must be like five, 600 meters away, sitting there looking at us. And then suddenly I realized they were, they were four seagulls about 12 meters away from me. Uh, I, I, I can't, like uh, that's so difficult to explain i've heard those stories before i went like i heard yeah. somebody i heard a story about somebody hunting a polar bear for hours before he realized it was a fox only a few meters like only just a little bit ahead of him 
and yeah. uh, and often we turn right. I'd say, "Oh, look, there's mountains. Land is just there." And then I'd realize it was like a three meter high, um, like iceberg, uh, only a hundred meters away. And and we just kept going and going and increasingly getting like. Did you have like a GPS? Um, yes, we had a GPS. So we were like, but the GPS shows water and land. It, and land. Show the ice. it doesn't show the sea ice, of course. Yeah, the sea ice is like moving, shifting. It could be gone tomorrow, there today. And uh, we were like, you know, looking at it saying, we need to get to that spot. It's on our right until eventually we were like quite far south of it. And uh, there was no land on our right. And we're just hoping that maybe we can get around the ice and then head north again. And it was just going and going and going. Um, at that point, I knew that maybe 25 miles south, we'd hit land again. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, just trying to like draw on all of the experiences I've had in the past where I, where I have rode for that long. And I thought I can, you know, I can outlast this. I can go through to a night if I need to. Until finally we uh, hit what's called fast ice rather than sea ice. Fast ice is like the semi-permanent ice that's attached to land and is thick and you could walk across and it doesn't shift and move. And I spotted like a tent on it and I screamed like, people, people, people. And everybody thought I was screaming at, my them saying like people come on like pull yourself together and i was like no people people it's people and they then saw us and ran over we threw um a line at them they pulled us up onto the fast ice and we they had a skidoo and we were like can you skidoo us back to land please and then we'll start the expedition again tomorrow and they said uh no basically uh and one of the um older inuit gentlemen there sort of said the the, the flow edge, which is why they call the meeting of the uh, the sea ice and the, and the fast ice. He said, the flow edge is a difficult and savage place. If you don't know what you're doing here, you shouldn't be here. That was like, well, to be fair, he's right. We've just been completely and utterly humbled. Um, so we uh, we were like, well, there's no water to get back into. So let's just drag our kayaks along the fast ice until we get back to land. So I tied the uh, kayak around my waist and just started like marching along like the old polar explorers pulling their sleds. And um, and we fought, I started following some uh, polar bear tracks because I thought polar bear will know what's like uh, good ice and what's bad ice. And at one point, I saw the polar bear's tracks had just gone a little bit left, just in a little bit of an arc for like five meters. And I thought, oh, I wonder why it's gone left there. And at that exact moment, the ice below me cracked and I just fell into the Arctic Ocean. And oh. uh, but I was in my dry suit, so it was okay. I'm just trying to run across. And I was like, no, no, don't come, don't come, you'll fall in. I'm in my dry suit. It's okay. Just push the kayak towards me. I'll hold on to the end and you can pull me out. Pull me out. Strap the kayak back on and continue to walk. Um, and then he, even after that, when we tried to launch the kayaks again, they uh, uh, Jeff went in the water. I had to grab him by the uh, life jacket and pull him out. Um, and uh, we eventually got back to land. And uh, there's a hut where we were heading to. So we went into the hut. And then we waited two weeks for the ice to move sufficiently for us to then wow, okay. start again. So I guess the original question is, when did I start? Well, you could say we were in the wilderness from July the 1st, and our first attempt was that day. Or you could say July 15th, when we like launched our kayaks and began traversing along the north, like through towards uh, the end. Right. And, and so would you have been running out of, you would have been eating into your supplies or was it easy to get more supplies where you where you were? As but yeah, uh, for the first few weeks, I only ate fuel because uh, I didn't want to, I'd rather be hungry then than at the end, um, which was good in the end because then we had um, enough of uh, those dehydrated meals to finish and also enough to um, uh, <clears throat> have, have a bit of a buffer and 
uh, the other two guys ran out of porridge. So uh, we managed to give them some breakfast as well, which was, you know, like uh, all, all good. Um, but uh, yeah, hunger, hunger. I experienced hunger on a, on a level which I've uh, never experienced before. I guess like when you're hungry because your stomach is empty, it's like a fit. It's, it's literally physical. There's like a space in your stomach and you want to fill. And I've had that, of course, but there is a level of hunger that moves away from your stomach and it's like, your actual cells are craving like food. I'm so depleted. Like, give me, give me food. Uh, it's, it's difficult to explain. It's so depleted, um, particularly at the end of that first half. When we pulled into Cambridge Bay, which was halfway in as a town and uh, where we were going to restock with food and we spent a few days there, um, I was like compulsively eating in a way that like I was like conscious, like my intellectual brain was like, you're full, but my body was like, uh, sort of dictating my hand movement as I crammed food in again to the extent that I was like ill and like panting with uh, I was so full I was like oh my god I'm so full but still eating now at one point we stopped in a cabin that had lots of dried food left by sailors and I we made enough pasta for about 52 people and then when we ran out of sauce but still had pasta I just covered it in sugar and ate as well and then I had to take some like nausea pills but I it was just so so hungry uh, and then in the second half I got I got that hungry again towards the end but miraculously, um, I, I was I was like ripped. I've had like a dad bod. I've looked like a melted candle my whole life. But I was absolutely ripped. Um, and so I assumed that I had like lost 12 kilograms and that's why I could see my six pack. But when I weighed myself at the end, I put on weight. Over the whole course of the three months expedition you'd? Like four, depending on the on the scale, <laughs> uh, like three to six kilograms. Wow. Of, of uh, and. And I was, and I could see my six pack and stuff. No wonder I was so hungry because I was just building all this muscle. I was absolutely ripped. I, I looked like a, like a Greek statue for about three days afterwards. And then, like a, they, I ate so much, and like when I got back to land, I was back to dad bod, like within, uh, within. But I'm interested. What was the kind of distances that you were doing each day? <clears throat> what was the um, total time on the water? Like, how did it sort of like, and then. Yeah, what were the logistics of like coming off the water, camping every night? And was you, were you camping on land or were you camping on ice? Like, what was the what was like the like an average yeah. day we're in all, the process? We were always camp, always camping on land, um, never on ice. Uh, and um, it, it it changed a lot from the beginning of the trip to the end of the trip. Beginning of the trip was quite ad hoc. It was twenty four hour sunlight, so uh, like we we weren't like constrained to a particular time of day. Um, and uh, it, it could be anything from like, uh, you know, our longest day was 18 hours, but that was like a complete, uh, complete anomaly. Uh, maybe around 10, but a lot of days shorter and a few days longer. Um, and in the second half, when there was nighttime from about 8 p.m., maybe from like 6 a.m., the sun would come up around 6 a.m., get dark again at 8 p.m. That sort of imposed a structure on us. And I, I think we did much better having that structure imposed on us um the men we tried to do from like 7 a.m to 5 p.m every day so 10 hours um and uh in that second half as well having lost that time at the beginning having spent a bit longer in cambridge bay than we intended we were um we were trying to cover as far distances as we can over those 10 hours so um you know straight out of cambridge bay uh we managed to get i think five or six days in a row um before weather changed and that was like 25 miles, 40 miles, 40 miles, 35 miles, 30 miles, 40 miles, and then a storm came. So six days. 
So that was a great week. Yeah. And then from then on in that second half, we were doing 30 to 40. In the first half, you know, we had days that were like 15 miles and days that were like 45 miles. Um, and it was really wayward. And then, uh, and then we'd pull up on land at the end of the day. And if there was even a little bit of wind, that was uh, those five minutes were an absolute suffer fest because you're warm when you're exercising and you get out of the kayak and immediately start cooling down like dangerously quickly. It's almost like an emergency to get into warm, dry clothes. But to get into warm, dry you clothes, have to take off your you have to get naked. <laughs> you had to get naked <laughs> for like, uh, so you're getting colder and colder and colder and then you have to get naked you got to put the other clothes on. And if it was really cold, then that would take even longer because your fingers would start to go. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I seemed to suffer from the cold less maybe than the rest of the team. Like, and sometimes I'd uh, have to help other people with their zips. Yeah, well, you're you're from Scotland and they're, and they're all from uh, from Austin, Texas. So I, I doubt they get exposed to the, the cold uh, quite quite as much as yourself. I was warm within like 10 seconds or it re reverse in the morning. If we were get if we were cold, putting on our wet clothes, as soon as we started kayaking, I didn't have a problem where Eileen sometimes it would take her like three or four hours to like regain feeling in her hands. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and West got frostbite and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, so th that was the big transition was a, was a real, a real pain and it was absolutely luxury on the days when there was no wind and there was sun out uh, and we'd like sort of walk around for a while and you talked about wind i mean obviously you've done uh you've attempted crossing the atlantic a couple of times and actually the 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 tides winds are and having a prevailing wind there are like critical to your crossings really and um how did it work when you're kayaking the the northwest passage like were were there tides like were you reliant on any winds or i know it's a human powered endeavor but um but yeah what what was the what were the actual i i, I mean i'm reading some of the stories it sounded like you had some big swells on some days but but yeah what kind of impact of the actual like sea motion had on the on the journey well i guess the big contrast to ocean rowing is like once you're out in the ocean there's no getting off so you're sort of dealing with the weather all the time. But because we camp, um, if the weather of the, of the wind was too strong, then we didn't go in it. Yeah. So although there were days where we had like, uh, you know, more choppy water or bigger winds, we were never out in like extreme winds because we just didn't go out. Yeah. We and, and in that case, we sometimes have days in our tent. And the longest we had was in a cabin, six days just waiting there. And those were the hardest days, especially towards the end because you begin to count the days. You're like, oh, it's already this date. We only have this much food. Winter's coming now. People said that October will be too cold for us. And it's already in the middle of the day. What if we have another six days like this? And you get in your own head. And then as soon as you start kayaking again, you feel more positive. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, and the tides, um, yeah, the, uh, there were some very strong tides. Um, and it was like a big varied place with like lots of different, Tides were different all over the place. Like literally within one day, we'd be like pushed along by a tide at six miles an hour. And the next day we'd try and catch that same tide at the same time, and even just 30 miles long, it didn't exist. Um, and uh, initially, I don't think the team was taking tides seriously enough. And um, uh, uh, yeah, that, and that was frustrating. But we, um, uh, but by the end, when we had that, uh, the daylight imposed on us, um, it wasn't so easy to go by the tides because, well, we have to go these 10 hours, whether the tides are there or not, yeah. because we can't go at night.
big goal now. Yeah, yeah, of course. So how did you choose in terms of how you were going to split the team up into your two different um, tandem kayaks? So it sounds like you were with Eileen, who's got an, an amazing yes. track record. But having done adventure racing before, um, which you often have like tandem kayaks, you will always put like your strongest your strongest kayaker with your uh with your with, with your least strongest and then um uh and yeah so was it was eileen actually the strongest kayaker out of the entire group well um initially like literally day one that day with the um the ice when um everybody was sort of giving me sideways look like <laughs> look how slow mark is um i was with jeff and because we were so slow um we decided that i would maybe be better off with eileen um i'm not sure what the thought process was behind that um i because i don't know who is the strongest kayaker the other guys have also won all sorts of stuff yeah. um and uh yeah with eileen i sped up quickly she was, uh, was very patient with me and like giving me uh, a lot of tips and also and the um the better i got at kayaking the more i realized how inexperienced i was at the beginning does that make yeah. sense yeah i think they call that the dunning kruger effect where the more you know the more you realize you don't know yeah. um and uh yeah, towards the end, I was beginning to realise how much Eileen had put up with at the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I owe her a great, great debt. Yeah, I suppose it's um, a power-to-weight thing as well, right? Because she would have been the lightest yeah. of the group and, yeah, the, and so a power-to-weight ratio. Well, yeah, she's probably similar weight to Jeff. I'm not sure who would be heavier, her or Jeff. Um, but, yeah, I, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was with Eileen the whole time and uh, I guess that was, yeah. Uh, who knows? There might, probably, there might have been a more efficient... Uh, <clears throat> there might have been a more efficient combination as well, but uh, Eileen and Jeff were both the ones who were steering, so there was only so much Mitchell maxing. It was not like, well, you know, West, it, let's say West was the strongest. He couldn't have gone with me because he didn't want to steer, and I couldn't steer because I was inexperienced. So it was either Jeff or Eileen for me. Like, uh, um, So obviously and, you were uh, in the front of the boat. The steering's done for, from the yeah. rear as well. Um, yeah. And... I mean, were there any um, like how, how what was it? How was the camaraderie in the team? Like you've never met them before. You turn up the first day, and obviously you'd had Zoom calls and stuff with them before. But they, I mean, very experienced uh, or like very experienced crew and like a, a, an adventurers. Um, yeah, did you did you fit in straight away? Did it take a while? I mean, it can be quite. Um, yeah, these kind of expeditions can really sort of bring out the best and worst in people. Yeah, well, that's it. That's a good question because um, this is uh, the camaraderie was very important to me. You know, uh, like a, uh, as you know, I, I give a lot of talks to schools and corporates and companies and, and whatnot. And my like message in the talks is always like you've got to move away from a binary concept of success rather than being like it's successful if we get through the Northwest Passage and therefore it's a failure if we don't. What are the intrinsic values you can you can judge success on your own terms on? And for me, that's camaraderie. If we don't get through the Northwest Passage, but I have a deep bond through our shared effort and shared experience, I could judge that as a success. So for me, camaraderie was an incredibly important thing. That and my other intrinsic motivation was immersion in nature. The reason I have those intrinsic motivations is because I had such a mental health crisis after failing to row the Atlantic. I realized I needed to start to diversify my like metrics of success. And in, initially, and immediately, we all got along very well. It was, a, it was a great, uh, like a great group. Um, I noticed in an interview recently that Wes said that one of the things he struggled with compared to his other expeditions was uh, dealing with new expedition members that he uh, was he didn't know before. Like Jeff and him were best friends for 30 years and uh, been on two other expeditions. So perhaps it was a struggle it, uh, for, uh, for some of the group. Um, 
uh, I got along with everybody. Uh, and uh, and by the end, did I have that experience of camaraderie? I got everything I was looking for from this expedition. And um, I, I really liked being in a tandem kayak. If we'd been in four kayaks, I would have had that as well. But being in a tandem kayak where you're actually pulling the boat together, you know, when I take a stroke, Eileen takes a stroke. It's like our shared force moves the kayak together. And for me, that's like a physical manifestation of the shared effort we're putting in together. It's like the camaraderie made real. So being in that kayak with Eileen for 103 days or whatever it was, it minus those first two weeks, 86 days of kayaking or whatever it was, you know, um, I, I've made friends, a friend for life. Like, you know, that's a, that's a special thing to do to move that kayak from A to B together. Yeah. And were there any points where you'd actually tow? Like, uh, did you, did you, um, were too risky yeah. from like, if there's a swell or like, um, cause I mean, it is an option uh, to have risky, a bungee. But... I, mean, I, I don't know what the possibilities of like towing a kayak are, um, <laughs> whether it's more or less efficient. I, I, I can, I know what you're thinking about because in the four man teams and the, uh, things like the Maclo, sometimes people get, yeah. Towed. And like, I've just done uh, it in adventure but, racing yeah. before as well when you've got a slower, but, boat uh, yeah, like and I did. I did one crossing from Cornwall to the Scilly Isles um, in Britain. And one of the groups was having a real trouble with his runner. So he got towed. Yeah. Uh, but that was in a solo kayak. So I don't know if it's possible in a double. Yeah. I, I think that it would have been um, so, so difficult, um, like from a team cohesion perspective, to recover from one team, lit you know, one kayak literally being towed by the other one. Yeah. Uh, like it would have created so much friction. Yeah. Um, from uh, I would have been annoyed if I had to tow somebody they would have been uh, and I, I'm sure that I wouldn't have been the ones towing because the other car was faster so they would have been annoyed towing us I would have felt bad being towed like you know the guilt it produced yeah, it was, yeah so it was never an option yeah, it was never, it was never discussed, an option. yeah option but to just thinking through it now it would be it would have been a nightmare scenario. yeah i mean one of one of the big parts of this expedition i remember when we spoke to you first time was was highlighting the uh the degradation of uh of sea ice or the or the like yeah shrinking of um uh, of sea ice and the obviously like the 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 climate and the the sort of um the, the global temperatures and actually 2023 has seen just absolute record temperatures around the world like scarily and um did you actually sit did that like impact the uh the expedition in any way in any way and were you able to actually witness and and feel that kind of um uh yeah the the shrinking of the of the sea ice across that uh, northwest passage well um i don't think there were record temperatures necessarily where we were yeah. in fact the rowing team who uh they were only maybe 70 miles behind us and then when they decided to stop uh, and they cited unprecedented weather, bad weather, not rather than good warm weather, yeah. and unpre more unprecedented weather on the way. Um, so uh, uh, they may have experienced some more extreme stuff than us. Yeah. In terms of the ice disappearing, the whole thing was possible because the ice was disappearing, yeah. but that's been happening for a long time rather than this year. Yeah. It's not like we circled this year in our calendar. Because no, of course. Of course. Unprecedented. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm not... Um, I know that on a general scale, but I'm not experienced enough to say this year there was less ice. But the Inuit that I spoke to there, they uh, they said that, you know, it, it, it means that it's more unpredictable. Mm. So it's not becoming predictably less or it's breaking up predictably earlier. It means that they used to be able to say on this date, there will be no ice. 
and we can go and we'll change our hunting from ice to sea. It'd be like this year, it seemed to break up much later. And other years, it breaks up much earlier. So um, we experienced a lot of sea ice. The first third of our journey, the story of it was sea ice. Um, and the, just talk uh, about the difference the between food. fast ice and sea ice. You talked about it there before, but the, yeah. But fast ice, like, I guess, like, the sea is frozen. It's one big block. It's like you can go ice skating on it kind of thing. The, they take their skidoos off on it. They would have previously taken dog sleds. It's attached to land. It's like, for the winter, it's permanent. Sea ice is like big chunks of ice, icebergs maybe as well, moving around and floating and um, and changing. And it can be blown miles offshore and you can't see it on the horizon or it can be pressed all against shore. And it is um, beautiful, but also incredibly dynamic sometimes if it gets in the, the right kind of place. There was times where, uh, you know, we, we camped once on this like sort of rocky outcrop plan of launching in the morning we wake up and the whole place is like crammed with sea ice it's being churned against the shore there's absolutely no chance of launching in it uh, when we crossed prince region inlet which was supposed to be the crux of the expedition 50 miles wide we um we had this hot i mean it's a whole story um, just leading up to this point where we saw narwhals and just incredible incredible sights but in the last few miles we were just a few miles offshore should have had an hour left to finish and then I think sea ice broke off somewhere else in the Northwest Passage and whatever currents or winds pushed it into Prince Regent Inlet. So with four miles to go, the whole place started filling up. Like every inch of water just become crammed with sea ice. And that was the most dynamic we'd seen it. It was like pouring in, like it looked like lava. Um, those four miles were weaving and trying to get to shore. We were just within half a mile of shore at one point and that we just couldn't get there. We tried to go back out to sea to maybe go around it. Those last four miles took us eight hours, and uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was incredibly hectic. At one point, I think I've, uh, uh, I've told this story a couple of times. So stop me if I if I'm repeating myself. To, uh, but like at one point, we found this like pool of water, the gap in the ice where we could take a rest. And uh, as we were resting, two massive ice floes started moving towards each other with us in between. And uh, West and Jeff Clark forward, Eileen and I couldn't. Um, and it was just within seconds, it was clearly going to crush us to death. Um, and by some miracle, when it hit us, because of the maybe the round shape of the bottom of the kayak, it just squeezed us up. It pushed us up and uh, rather than crushing us. So if it had been five kilograms heavier, leading to the right, leading to the left, the ice flow had been a little bit bigger or moving in a different, I don't know, any 1% change would have just been flattened. Uh, so we were then suspended above the ice, pulled ourselves forward, plunged back into the water. But now that they'd hit each other, they were sort of closing even the remaining little bit of uh, water. So I jumped out onto a flat ice floe, pulled by the Eileen's kayak up onto it, turned around, and Jeff and Wes spoke their their um, their uh, their nose had been pushed up onto the ice, but the back where Jeff was sitting was still in the ice. And as it pressed against him, it was slowly rotating them. So Jeff was about to be pushed upside down into the ice water. Uh, and he's a super chill. Dexon's such a, such a chill guy. And he was going, yeah, we're going to need some help here pretty soon. Uh, yeah, Mark, if you could give us some help, that would be real helpful. Uh, thanks. Bye -bye. So turn around and I tried to like straighten their kayak and I heaved them up as well. Then we all just got out and we stood on this ice floe, which uh, we looked at our GPS and we're still moving at 3.5 miles an hour which uh, was about as fast as we could kayak. 
Yeah. We just stood there for like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, like getting very cold because it was probably 3 a.m. or something, even though there was sun, even though it was this 24 hour sunlight, the night was colder. Um, just waiting and waiting. And then the ice began to move and spread out a little bit. We decided to make a break for it then. So we made a break. And this time we were like, we're not going to uh, try and find the gap. We're just going to absolutely go for it. So we like kayaked as fast as we could. And then as soon as we hit a piece of ice, we jump out, pull the kayaks over, continue to kayak, kick another piece of ice, pull the kayak over. And we eventually got to the front of all this sort of moving train of 100 kilometers squared of ice. So we were finally in like open water again, but still all of it was moving behind us. We had to kayak like mad as it's like train this the ice just chased us. Was it moving in the right and direction? We finally... Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we were finally getting to shore. Like, oh, it's just there. You know, relief, laughter, retention drops off. And I say, hang on. There's a couple of sheep we're about to land. Are there sheep up here? I'm racking my brain thinking, do the Inuit farm sheep? Is this a climate change thing that there's now sheep up here? Maybe muscots turn white and uh in the winter but it's not winter is it that late i just go through all these stories like why are there sheep right where we're landing and then i saw a much bigger sheep appear from behind a rock and i realized it was two cubs and a bear wow no like after all this time <laughs> this of all the places this bear could be this is exactly where we're trying to get to so we had to kayak for another few miles along shore for another 40 minutes to an hour finally stopped this beautiful campsite with this waterfall behind us that had these like bridges of snow that had still like um across the front of it and just sat there it was 10 a.m in the morning uh had a cup of tea and uh had a, a snickers i've been saving for this like crux move to celebrate um and uh it was tough but all of us sort of remember that day in all the interviews, I, you know i think west did a couple as well and they say what's the most memorable best day and he's like Prince region in the crossing yeah. we saw so many things we saw narwhal cut right under us we saw this incredible sunset where the sun, like the sun just touched the horizon but didn't set yeah. it turned all of the ice this amazing orange color and then we saw the moon rise but only just over the horizon so there was like a moon on our left just in the horizon sun on our right just in the horizon on our right side all of the ice was orange from that sunset on our left side, all of the ice was blue from the moon rise. Uh, and then we had that experience at the end with the dynamic ice. And, uh, and you know, if all of my motivations are immersion in nature and camaraderie, well, you know, I was maybe too immersed in nature at the moment that we're two icebergs smashed into either side of me. Uh, but camaraderie as well, you know, we fought for ourselves, for each other. Um, and, uh, and then... You know, if I wanted to get through Northwest Passage, well, we'd finish the crux. So everything was coming together. That was that, that was a day that will live with me forever. And uh, even if I describe it and tell it, I still feel like, you know, the, the way it looked and the way it felt, like there's only three other people in the world who really get it. And that's what is special to me. Yeah. So, it sounds amazing. How much longer did you have to go after that crux point? What was how many how many days did you um, still have to go? That was early on. Okay. Um, so <laughs> this is why I felt like every time we finished a crux move, I was like, it's downhill from here. And it never, ever got easier. Yeah. Um, so that must have been, uh, I don't know, sometime in August. Yeah. 
so uh, we went on to like mid-October. Yeah. <laughs> so, so talk to us about the end then, Mark. So you, once the actual point that was deemed as the sort of end of the Northwest Passage as the Canadians uh, had defined it, what uh, that wasn't actually a, a an easy point to be extracted from, right? So you had to have like yeah. a effectively like a an ice plane to, or a plane that can land on ice or like or to be able to to collect you so what was the sort of extraction plan once you'd reached the final point of the um of the expedition so initially we were, uh, we were going to kayak to the nearest town which is a place called took the hat cook um which was maybe 160 miles away from cape brathurst which is the official end of the northwest passage but uh it got so so late in the season. My uh, pa- if you wonder why it's gone dark, my power's gone off again. <laughs> uh, it got so late in the season that uh, 160 miles uh, was um, it was a ma- like it was too far. It, you know, we could have done it maybe, but uh, once we'd achieved the aim, it seemed reckless to continue for 160 miles in in the winter conditions. And what and what's more, you know, the days off the water when the storms came, you know, that initially might have been like three or four days kayaking, one day of storm. By the time we got to October, it was sort of like three or four days of storm, one day of kayaking. And that one day of kayaking, our level was going up and up. In the in the early days of the, the expedition, we'd be like, guys, it's 16 mile an hour winds tomorrow. We're going to, it's an off day. We're going to wait out this storm. And by the end, we're like, oh, great. It's only 16 mile an hour winds. Tomorrow's an on day. So uh, we decided that, um, it'd be better to get out as soon as we could, having achieved the expedition aim, uh, rather than just going to a town. So, but that was still 60 miles away, was an abandoned airstrip. So uh, we, we still needed a kayak 60 miles from uh, from Cape Brathurst. And we uh, we did 16 miles that day after completing the Northwest Passage. Then we were stuck in a storm, uh, which was the strongest winds we'd experienced. Like it was so strong that when we sat in the tent, we couldn't hear each other talk. Like Wes was on the other side of the tent, the four person tent, and he had to shout for me to hear him. I woke up in the morning and in the pitch dark, but dark, I had to go out with my spare paddle and use it as a shovel to dig the back of the tent out from a pile of snow so we could get back to our kit. Um, and then we uh, kayaked another 32 miles that day um, and made it to a place called Nicholson Peninsula. And then waited, uh, camp there. And then the next day, about 5 p.m., a charter plane came and landed on that abandoned airstrip and picked us up and took us back to a place called Inuvik. Uh, so, yeah, those last few days, yeah, was three extra days or four extra days? Yeah, it was like bizarre because you'd done the achievement, but then you've you got a long way to go. To There's go. still some, and like, what well, in particular, it was like, a crossing it was 32 mile crossing to get to uh, uh nicholson peninsula and we're like we could do a shorter crossing and split it into two days but we really were low on food yeah we were like it's tuesday we have food till thursday lunchtime and then we're out so we're like if we split this into two days and we go wednesday and thursday and then you get that's sn- fine. And the weather gets but, bad then you get stuck but you. we go wednesday and th- thursday forecast doesn't hold out because it's becoming less and less predictable in the early days i was saying i only trust the forecast for three days ahead mm. if somebody says there's a great day four days from now you guys will be able to make 40 miles I think well i'll believe it when i see it i only trust three days and then by the time we got to the end i was like i only trust it for basically about 12 hours so we'd have to like we'd say tomorrow's a day that we can paddle and then we'd wake up we'd have to get another forecast to like confirm it um yeah big day, so big day to i was finish. really worried 
yeah, I was really worried um, that I, I was very, I was, I really, you know, even if it means we do this crossing slowly and we arrive at night, um, it's uh, in my opinion, better than uh, uh, splitting it into two days and risking a different forecast. The other guys at the crew were saying they don't want to arrive at night. That's too risky. Obviously there's like valid, valid arguments for both sides, but in the end, the weather held out and we, uh, we, um, and uh, we had it was 32 miles and the first 16, 17 miles, I don't know what was happening. There must be a current or something, but we absolutely crushed it. We flew through. So um, we were now only like 15, 10, then 10 miles away. And then we got this terrible headwind and suddenly dropped to like 2.9 miles an hour. But by that point, we were like close enough that we weren't going to turn and split it into two days. Yeah. But uh, it, it was just like a manifestation of the whole thing where like it was literally never easy. And every time you thought you were like, on the downhill something else would make it hard and even in the end it was like yeah nothing is for free here nothing yeah yeah and even uh, i was watching the videos of you getting picked up by the plane and then it, the the kayaks didn't actually fit in in the plane right so you ended up having yeah. to like saw off the uh the um yeah the ends of uh of both the kayaks to get them in would they be able to fix them again i was like immediate thought is like Actually, are they still going to be usable again, or has that just like killed the kayaks? Wes and Jeff are very handy. Um, they already fixed our kayaks a number of times on the trip, and they say they can put it back on. Obviously, it's going to like completely ruin the like resale, or they're not going to be suitable for going through the Northwest Passage again. But um, you know, they'll definitely be suitable for like a recreational club or something like that uh, yeah. being fixed together. But uh, yeah, it must have been such a relief to see that plane landing on that um, on that yeah. abandoned runway, and uh, and know that well, we're supposed to come like two p.m. and then they said three p.m. and then they said four, and then they messaged us and said there was a problem with our credit cards, uh, and we were like, you know, it's going to be dark in a few hours. If they come tomorrow, that's going to be such a disappointment. And then there's the forecast thing all over again. We were like, well, what if tomorrow's forecast doesn't hold and they can't come? Um, you, uh, you, you're just full of anxiety and so desperate to get out at that point. You're like going through the worst case scenarios. And then when it did come, it like did five or six flybys over us. And they'd said if it's icy, they can't land. And we didn't think it was icy. But they did one flyby and we're like, oh, they're just checking us out. Oh, they're checking us out again. And then they did like three or four. And we're like, oh my God, they can't land. Like, what, wow. why are they doing it again? Then they did land. And that, when they landed, that was such a relief. Remember, we got up into the, into the sky like, um, I turned around and West was just in tears and I reached out and said, hold my hand. And we just held hands as he cried and uh, you know, looking out of the window and seeing the vastness of it and uh, 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 what we'd achieved together, the four people who I'd gone through it together with, just sitting there in that row. Uh, uh, it, and this, you get an idea of how massive the landscape is from an aeroplane and, it was a really special moment and like uh, the, the feeling of contentment was immense, which is, is good because you, you know, you'll feel proud or relief or maybe you'll want to go back or whatever, but contentment is like a difficult uh, emotion to achieve. I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was just like, this is special. Yeah. And, and given, I mean, we, we talked about it a lot when the last time we spoke three years ago or so, and, uh, and yeah, the challenges that you face with depression off the off the attempts on the Atlantic like it must have felt quite 
cathartic as well in a way of like to have yeah. actually done an achievement like this having had the challenges in the past and uh and now you're home but that, that that's the immediate feeling but then when you get home and sort of normality comes back into life like it's quite a strange feeling like and, and i'm interested how you're coping now back at home and whether it's uh you're back planning the next one now to try and keep scratching that itch. yeah well a lot of people have asked me that and my dad warned all my family and my, my wife like because he was a proper explorer like literally mapped part of greenland mapped part of patagonia and he was saying you know just be prepared that Mark might struggle with re-entry. And a lot of other people I've heard about sort of have post-expedition blues as well. But I don't, so far Amazing. at least, luckily. Uh, uh, that contentment, that's why I'm saying like uh, that emotion I'm focusing because I'm so proud. And you, you could be proud, but also like itching for something else or proud and struggling to readjust or, or, or all sorts of things. But contentment where you're like, wow you know i years of my life of training and now i've achieved it and uh i don't want to go back out there uh, it's not that i don't I, I will do adventures again but for now i'm just like completely just one with myself um and i've and and i think about that the struggle that i had so i try to you know if if you haven't listened to the first podcast i failed to row the atlantic um in 2016 then I failed again in 2018. In 2018, um, that failure crushed me. I wouldn't say I was depressed, um, but uh, I was definitely in like a bit of a, a crisis and it began to spin into all of my like aspects of life. Just finding it very, very difficult to come to terms with like the reality that I had an idea of who I was as like a resilient adventurer. And, uh, and I was trying to reconcile the fact that I failed. And, uh, uh, to go through that and then to plan the Northwest Passage of the rowing team, which I found really, really difficult. And uh, um, I felt like I was trying to help a lot. Um, and uh, uh, and I, I met a lot of resistance from that team. Um, and that, that was even harder, the, the, the planning of that expedition. So then make that difficult decision to switch at the last second to kayaking. To go through all of that, I think is added to the contentment. Yeah. Um, and I know that what I said and what I say about how I felt in 2018, but I feel so content now. It's almost difficult to like remember how bad it was because I'm now like it was all worth it. It's all come to this. I have um, uh, I've got everything I want out of this expedition. I'm so proud. I'm so content, and uh, and it hasn't gone away. Partly, what might help with that is. Um, that uh, when you finish an expedition, you've had like such a clear aim for so while, for so long, you then feel aimless. But uh, I have a baby due in about seven weeks, so like my next big thing is um, is is like immediately here. So you know, it's, it's not like I'm uh, aimless again. Yeah, that's amazing, and uh, and I, I'm happy for you. I really am, Mister Agnew, and um, uh, that that you've got that that feeling of contentment and achievement and and pride. Uh, it's very well deserved. It just goes to show that the, if you can persevere, if you can uh, like not like, lose sight of the goal of the aim, um, then you will you will feel that at some point, and you will be able to like have that um, that feeling and, of success. Yeah. Perseverance, resilience, all important. But again, my message, and move away from that single 
goal as your only metric of success. If you you've got to find something intrinsic. Yeah. You know, I would have felt proud if I really wanted to burn the Northwest Passage and did. But I feel content because I wanted to be immersed in nature and have an experience of camaraderie. Yeah. And uh, those things, because in time, I guess a world first, nobody's going to, you know, that will last forever. But like, um, eventually, like that will become arbitrary or, or people won't remember it or the validate, it won't be in the newspapers anymore or might just become a pub quiz question. Who was the first person to do this? Um, uh, but you know, camaraderie lives with you forever. You know, yeah, I'll be able to have a pint year or ten years or fifty years. Eileen's coming across to Edinburgh next year, um, and we'll sit down and that camaraderie. We won't say how great is it that you and I are world record holders. Yeah, we'll say member of Prince Regent Inlet, and we won't have to tell the story. We'll say I remember, yeah. and that is the difference. Between, that's where the contentment comes from. So that's why I'm so keen to emphasize these like intrinsic things rather than this one single extrinsic goal. That that that's what has brought me just the whole picture. Yeah. Amazing, Mr. Agnew. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing it. And uh yeah, I'm proud of you as well. It's great to witness after after all this time. And um and yeah, I'm sure that there's gonna be many opportunities to continue to share this story. And uh, uh I know that you you're uh, do lots of like corporate speaking gigs and, and education gigs as well. So um yeah, I'm 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 sure that that will uh, that will take off as well. But yeah, well. I'm trying to I'm trying to get across to uh, trying to get across to Asia. I've been speaking to uh, a couple of people in Hong Kong. See if I can come do some talks in Hong Kong in Singapore. So maybe maybe you'll get to hear this story all over well, again. Well, next time we catch up, we'll have a little bit more because obviously you're are, are you still doing some some writing for SCMP and you're still uh, still covering uh, adventure and uh, endurance and um, uh, for for the SCMP. A little bit, yeah. My my role has changed. You know, like well, first of all, I had a full time job. Then when I moved back to prepare for the Northwest Passage, I wrote for them twice a week. Um, and now um, I, I, I basically have to pitch like a freelancer, which is, um, you know, as to be expected. Yeah. Um, so my stories will occasionally appear, probably less frequently. Yeah, well, hopefully you get a, a few more coming out and we'll uh, have some ideas to, to pitch as well. But, uh, you know, you'll, you'll forever be connected with the Asian endurance uh, community with all of the that you did for um certainly for like trail running and outdoor adventure in uh in in hong kong and across the region uh but yeah we'd love to love to see you out here again soon sir but once again massive congrats and uh yeah amazing world first and um yeah enjoy that feeling of contentment for as long as it may continue and uh and also for the uh, imminent arrival of uh, of number two as well sir that's uh your your uh, uh, like and also shout out to your to your wife that's been like following you whilst you're uh whilst heavily yeah. pregnant and uh uh and heavily heavily pregnant one-year-old daughter we had our kitchen redone which you may hear some banging in the background now so she was living off like an electric hob um you know it takes a village i didn't just row the northwest passage with three other people you know it took my wife to support me my family to support me yeah, it takes a village. Yeah, well, I mean, she's like a, an absolute trooper and, and so incredibly supportive. So like a uh, hat tip to her for sure. But always a pleasure to catch up, Mr. Agnew. And um, and yeah, look forward to um, to speaking to you again soon. Great. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Mr. Rick Stockfish, good to see you, sir. How are you doing? Yeah, pleasure as always, mate. How are you doing, Scott? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And um, 
it was also a pleasure to catch up with uh, with Mark Agnew, having spoken to him three years ago. And when we got him on three years ago, it was very much about that he was so critical to the adventure and ultra running community in Asia with his role at SCMP. Like he'd done some great work just sort of elevating the scene through the um through the sort of major major newspaper in uh, in hong kong and um and it, yeah i remember him mentioning and talking that that point about how he was taking on this uh this um northwest passage expedition but how cool is it that he's finally knocked the bugger off yeah so pleased for him like and you can just hear it in the way he talks about it and and the that feeling of satisfaction and also just how open he is about how low, how low he sunk, kind of in the in between times, um, and the doubt that crept in, and um, yeah, it's just great. And 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 you and I were talking just before this. Like, I think what's really what's really great when you talk to someone like Mark is just how articulate he is about talking through this. Now, and I don't know whether that's that he's he does a lot of public speaking. I, I have a feeling it's probably also just if you have a clear goal and a real understanding of your why and what your what you're aiming at i think it then becomes a lot easier to kind of talk about it because you just you have yeah. a clear vision you know he's obviously spent a lot of time kind of if not on his own on this trip kind of in his own thoughts kind of just just plowing on um and it's just it's just great to hear someone kind of talk about a big goal try their best in in various different ways to get there and then eventually manage to pull it off so yeah it's uh hats off to the bloke yeah, I mean, he's full on media trained. Not only did he work in the media as a journo, but he seeing him on BBC, ITV, GB News. I was a bit pissed off. He's on GB News, that like that that right right wing channel. But um, but no, it is it's actually really funny. He did a did a really good job on all of them, and uh, we'll share links to the uh, to to the videos there and um, him on all those news channels. But yeah, I, I loved it the way he talked about that, he's just you know, feeling so satisfied. And it's interesting, whenever I've kind of completed a race, I'm always thinking, what next? What next? I don't know. And I, I've never, it's probably because I haven't done anything quite as hard as he's just done and so massive that it feels like, ah, oh, it's just got to lead on to the next thing. And, uh, but yeah, I think that it was just such a monumental expedition and so challenging and like such huge distances covered. And I think it was the total days is like over a hundred days. Um, yeah. I, I, I can understand that, that feeling of satisfaction and, uh, and pride and feeling and rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the itch will come back at some point and, and he's got another big project with a baby right on the way. Um, sure. But I think that, you know, I, I think it was also just really great hearing him talk about, you know, the the sheer joy he felt in the experience and those certain moments that he went through, um, however hard it got. Like he he knew why he was there, which I think was really important. Um, yeah. yeah, really, really, really good. Yeah. And just, you know, he talks about the camaraderie as being one thing and then and just being out in nature as well and him having achieved those those two things and built built an amazing bond with his uh, with, with his boatmate as well. And um, yeah, like just really happy for him, really happy for him and a great story. And just, uh, you know, he's going to go down in history. And, and as someone that as a, uh, like heavily researched 
all of these Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. And, you know, he's been inspired about it for years to actually have a, sm a small part in that history now is, uh, is must just be an amazing feeling for him. Yeah. I mean, if, if he isn't already thinking of writing a book about it, he probably should, you know, not necessarily yeah. just about his own experience, although I think that's pretty interesting, but just tying that in with that history, he talks about the lineage and, you know, the inspiration he got from, from reading about this. Um, but I think just the, you know, the fact that it's a first, the fact that, the fact that the fact that it's a first is 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 kind of tainted a little bit with the fact that it's even possible when it shouldn't be. Yeah, um, yeah. But the, the 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 human power element, um, you know, grabbing that window when it became available. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 something really interesting I think to be written there. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, he's going to be. I'm sure he'll be out on the public speaking circuit. He's going to be going and speaking to companies and i'm sure like he's uh it's gonna it's gonna forge a career out of him much like it has with uh with grant rawlinson as well and axe who um who actually i had him coming to my um uh, my business a, a couple of months ago and run a session around uh like building culture and purpose in the business it was fantastic it was just an amazing and i and i think there's a yeah there's a career in that for uh, Mr. Mark Agnew as well. Um, but yeah, it's been a while since we called up. Actually, the the last podcast we recorded were at, um, were at VMM. Um, unfortunately, you couldn't make it over. I know you were you were trying to, but ah, uh, mate, great weekend up in uh, up in Sapa. It's just such a cool race, and um, yeah, it was some it was a great field as well. I mean, we didn't. I was planning to do a, a recording with um, with David to sort of do a recap of it, but um, yeah, some. It, the the race in the 50k was just really impressive just to watch um stingray and christian just battling it out like it was a real fierce competition that and um uh and yeah they were neck and neck just a couple of minutes behind each other um and yeah jeff campbell had a bit of a rough one on the 100k i had a good catch up with him actually just a genuinely lovely bloke and he's got such an incredible story as well of how turning up in hong kong as a and he showed me a picture of like when he arrived in hong kong and i think going out on a run and you would not recognize him as a proper fatty and i think i was laughing too hard but i was like hysterically laughing for about five minutes at this photo that he showed me but his transformation and and um yeah being um yeah just being meeting john ellis when he came to hong kong and um and then you know just an incredible athlete but yeah he he was coming off um, a calf injury and and wasn't quite ready but gave it a good good smash but he's um he's gone on to win a couple of races in hong kong since but sango sherpa we caught up with him and what a, what a legend that guy is like just a really cool guy um coming off just doing tour de jean and then coming second in um in the in vmm 100k uh and then i think he's gone on to he, he ran the jeju one and i think he was like uh, he was top three or top five there as well but he's just like smashing race after race after race he's actually got a documentary coming out in the new year um, how was the, yes. how was how was the organizational stuff around vmm i know we spoke david puts on great races but we when we spoke about it last year i think the you know, he was caught in that awkward situation of kind of wanting to continue to grow the scene. There were so many people coming in and so many different distances. Yeah. And they just had really terrible weather last year as well, which like, which just must have been so stressful for him. Um, but yeah, weather was a lot better. They just had it a lot simpler. They had the um, 10K, 23K, and they'd upgraded the 42 to a 50. 
to make it a proper ultra marathon. And then they had a um, 70 and 100. Um, so it sounds like quite a lot, but it, they spread it out quite nicely over the weekend. So it had a real festival kind of feel to it in terms of, um, you know, the, the way the races were staggered. And honestly, the start line for the 100K was just, I, I mean, you should, I will share the link to the um, to the video of it. But the atmosphere was incredible. There were thousands of people out on the streets watching. It was just such a cool atmosphere. It was so cool. And it was like started at like 9 p.m. in the evening or something. And yeah, it was um, it was really uh, yeah, I was just thinking, oh, I wish I was going out there with 100 with the 100 K runners. Um, and um, and yeah, then the 50 K runners went out. Um, so then 70 went from uh, the uh, the Eco Lodge because the, all the other ones were in Sapo. Um, and so then the 50 and then the 23K went just after each other. So I saw the 50K crew go off and then and then I ran the 23. I was like kind of injured, so I wasn't in great shape. But yeah, it's a great performances, fun weekend. Um, yeah, it's just uh, I, I, they do struggle trying to maintain trails in a lot of the races. I think the 50K sounded like it was the best course. Like it was a really going up Cow Hill. They had a, like trail going up all of Cow Hill and he'd, he'd secured a really cool route from there. But every year it's kind of like battling of, you know, their concrete trails. And it's like, oh, OK, so then it's it's a real balance between having very technical stuff going through paddy fields and then slightly more runnable stuff that's going to be on a bit of concrete there's going to be a co concrete through it so that's the biggest challenge they face but yeah i mean they've expanded they've got vum that's um that's coming up uh vietnam ultra marathon in a area which is i forget the name of it but it's a bit closer to hanoi um which uh, looks like a really cool course they had vjm just the, the other um the other week um so yeah, going going strong and just Vietnam's so beautiful. It's just a really good playground to be able to organise races. Yeah, they do an amazing job, and those are independently organised events. Like it's interesting. I was reading this week about um, this guy Gary. He's Gary Robbins that organises these events in Whistler. Yeah, he's been, he's been denied a permit, and there's a bit of back and forth about exactly why and so on. But essentially, his contention is. Well, UTMB, UTMB race has taken over on the same day and basically taken over his right. race. So really so, sad, you know, isn't it? It is, and it's it's hard because you know this. Uh, you know, you and I are not immune to the draw of UTMB. Like we were talking about, you you were thinking of doing the Doi race in Thailand. That's UTMB branded. I'm looking at one next summer in Spain. But I think you know we are losing something with those guys taking over all of these independently run events. And I think you know we've talked yeah. about Chris and, and the Asia Trailmaster and what. What a great job they do, I think, in yeah. uniting those races, but allowing them to preserve their individual kind of identity. Um, yeah. You know, like yeah. it would be it'd be a real shame if, in a way, if I mean, if if those Vietnamese races suddenly got corporate branding on them and um, and, and lost a lot of their charm. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, hats off to David there. Yeah, no, exactly. And you're right. The Asia Trail Masters, they've got the uh, Malaysian Mountain Trail Festival happening this weekend, actually, which is a big one in the Asia Trail Master um, series. So we'll be, we'll be following that. Um, yeah, actually, like Chris Timms, who is going up to to run that this weekend. But I, I was out running UTSG Ultra Trail uh, Singapore, which is actually also a UTMB Stones uh, like race. But um but yeah, Chris absolutely crushed it. Like doing a nine hour, 15, 100K, just like 
really, man, he's, he's such a good runner. Like he's, he can do like a 17 minute, 17 and a half minute 5k. And then he can do a nine, a nine hour hundred K. He's just so he's got such broad skill spectrum yeah. of skills for running but um but yeah it was fun running running with him this weekend um but then you, but went, your last you, couple... back, you did that and then you did the next day you did the forest force was it yeah so um the solomon forest force series which has been going on over the last couple of months they've had a a 10k 23k and a 42 and a 50 and they had to combine the 42 and 50 this weekend um but yeah i, I ran the 50 there was because there was a few other races going on, it wasn't the most competitive field, but yeah, managed to put in a decent run and uh, took took home my first trail win in uh, in Asia, first um, uh, first first place. Um, it was like really hot. It was a really hot day, and it was the course was really exposed. Um, and yeah, it was. I had a little vomit with forty k forty k in and. Uh, managed to manage to keep on going to hold on but no it's fun it's good and um yeah, I just, it was just really a training um, run don't do yourself down mate i mean you, you can only beat the competition in front of you so yeah congratulations mate that's uh that's a real milestone yeah no it's good i mean i, I i'm interested in going up to doi uh in the utmb thailand and actually racing in like a really competitive field because actually a hong kong 100 i felt i put in a really good run in at the beginning of this year and i got like top 30 there so it'd be nice to sort of better that and get a top 20 um but what there's been some other like sorry what distance are you doing in that one i'm doing the 100k or it's about i think it's a 96 i think it's a 96 so um there i think a lot of the major elites are doing the doing the miler so um there'll still be a very competitive field though no doubt um but um but yeah there's been some other like last weekend or a weekend before last really just some amazing following with the the bigs backyard and the adventure racing uh, world series championships we'll touch on that first i i go on a lot about like adventure racing being my favorite sport but i think from a spectator perspective i just love a bit of dot watching i just find it so entertaining especially over a long weekend and it's the it's the was the world champs in um in south africa in kuga i think it's kuga national park isn't it um and uh Oh my gosh, the course! Did you like? Did you like research the course at all? It's like over eight hundred kilometers. Um, yeah, it's a major bike, uh, bike like two hundred and fifty k bike sections in there. Was, well, they had, uh, to, they had to reroute. They had to reroute at some point, though. There was, uh, I think, they had a storm come through at one point, yeah. and then they had to like uh, reroute a couple of bits. Yeah, there was also a, a big abseil bit that they had to change because of the um, was on a, obviously on a river, but. Um, they had to um uh divert that but um but yeah i mean it's a very well run race so uh heidi who um has taken over um the adventure racing world series she's the race director of the south africa race she also they've also run a few other races and as part of the series but they're based in south africa but they've um she uh took over from the team in australia which had originally started the ran xbd and um and they just are very good race directors and they're just um they know how to put it on properly but but yeah we had jay joining um joining the brazilian multi-sport brazil multi-sport team and uh and yeah they ended up coming fifth on just honestly which would have been the most harrowing tough and look you know jay's done utmb he's done loads of mountain bike races he did 
the world champs in Reunion Island, along with Ryan Blair um, in 2018. But I reckon by the looks of it, this was one of the toughest courses that there's been in, in adventure racing. Yeah, I mean, amazing achievement there. I, actually, I, I mean, I don't think we've spoken like the big news with the adventure racing scene in the last couple of months was that God's Own's not going ahead. Anymore. Yeah, no, we haven't. And it's a real like I'm 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 like kind of sad about it. It's like it was it was on my um my bucket list of races. It's been for for many years. And but yeah, I think the the long and short of it is that they just weren't able to get the right. And, and the, this is the problem in Singapore as well. Like the Ash, the Solomon Forest Force uh, races, they just can't get approvals to get the right course that they they were to build the right course and yeah i think they were just having real trouble getting like the approvals for the course and they just it, it you know they've done it for 10 11 years now and it's just a very you know it's a lot that goes into putting on those races and commercially like they weren't really getting as many international people coming in because you do need an extra um team member it's to be able to team. support yeah um but yeah, it's a real shame. I don't know whether it will come back in some capacity in future. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, look, they um they actually had part of Adventure Race World Series. They had like a conference at the, um at the end of it, and and they had Nathan Fave come and speak at it. And I actually watched it back. It was on Facebook, and I watched it. I watched uh, his presentation, and I mean, he's still doing the Spring Challenge with. 450 teams of three females which is the sport is going from strength to strength in australia so something will have to fill that void whether it's nathan expands his um but um but yeah it's just a shame that that race has um has come to an end something hopefully will come up but honestly like watching uh, the adventure race world series i think that the sport you know there's still a lot of legs in the sport and um, there was a lot of spectators the social following and the the reactions on social engagement looked amazing looked really strong so um yeah i mean we haven't heard much about the eco challenge because obviously amazon didn't pick it up for the second time round. so um but yeah we haven't heard much about that being um redone so but we'll, we'll see i hope um i hope there's a, a long life in in the sport yet yeah. Um, but yeah, congrats to 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 Jay with um yeah the Brazil multi sport team for putting in a, a top five. I have to mention like our uh, our endurance Asia athlete of the year last year as well, yeah. Chris Fawn, joined Tiki Tour, who were the um I think they finished third in the World Champs. Oh no, sorry, in the Eco Challenge in uh, in uh, twenty nineteen or um the one that was on Amazon and. Um, yeah, he obviously without um, Nathan Fave and Team Avaya, he had to um, find a new team. So he joined Tiki Tour. It sounded like they had a rough, rough ride. Like they were struggling from heat and uh, a couple of the teams really struggled. And they ended up, it was just him and the female athlete, um, I forget her name, that were um, racing just together. And then I think she also had, had some trouble right towards the end. So he um, there was a South African team, Merrill, that only had three people left. So I think he... He came home with them, but actually his finishing time was was in, was incredible. But like he was still like, I think if they finished as a team, it would have still been top ten. But um, it just goes to show, like, I mean, and we said like that Chris is such a like critical and important part of that team. But 
you need the team you need to have everyone gel together and you need the captain you need like the couple of navigators and so um without Stu and without Nathan um and without Soph it's uh you know he needs to find another team to gel into yeah and then speaking of dot watching like in terms of I mean you know just an event that you can kind of check back in with over multiple days I mean that's the thing with with Big's Backyard Ultra the it's that crazy thing if you can kind of forget about it for for the best part of a day and then think, oh, I better check whether it's still going on, and it and it usually is. It's mad. <laughs> yeah, we um, and it's almost like you only really want to start watching it when it gets to the really pointy end. And there were just so many people that were like still going this year, weren't there? And yeah, big shout out to um, uh, yeah, to Joshua Toe from Singapore who won the Singapore version and went out and like slammed a three hundred miler like. Wow. And I see him out on the trails quite a lot. He's been so dedicated to it. He's just been so focused on it for the last, um, for the year since we had him on the podcast um, to talk about his win at the Singapore version. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's just such an interesting event, isn't it? Like, I mean, not just seeing how far people can push themselves, but I think, you know, you look at someone, the idea that you can only go, you know, one lap further than the assist it's just it's just fascinating because you look at someone like Joshua. What did he do in Singapore? 50, 52, 54, 55, 50, Yeah, like yeah. And then look how much further he's able to go in the right company. You know, um, all of those people kind of pushing one another further and further and further. Um, and then it's just interesting because when it gets to the really pointy end, it just all falls apart so quickly. So I think I was watching it at you know ninety sixth hour, so four hundred miles in. And there was, I can't remember now, eight, nine, ten people still going. Yeah. And then just just they just drop hour by hour. And then suddenly there's only two, and then then, then it's last man standing. Um but yeah, what an amazing, what an amazing race to follow. Yeah, I because they had like the people at the end. Um yeah, like because you had uh, my is it Merin Gertz from Belgium and then the guy Phil Gore from Australia. Um and um this is this guy Mori 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 from um from Japan I think Morishita yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, uh Terry Terry Muchimoto he um he did a hundred laps but then uh so I think I when it got over the hundred hour mark I think there was like a big uh, um and then the the Ukrainian or Canadian Ukrainian Ihor and um uh and Harvey Lewis got to the end and it's funny like that Ukrainian dude's like in his mid twenties. And I think Harvey's got to be in his fifties or something. I think he's like 47, 48. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're like two. And this is why you can't say, oh, clearly that sort of athlete is going to do this. Or like, it's not like an, like you'd have age groups because you've got an advantage if you're younger. They're yeah. They're, like, it's just those that are were willing to bury themselves and just have that complete, uh, like the will just to keep going it's a crazy sport man i i'm it, it it i i like i i like following it i don't i i just don't fancy like uh doing it. i mean uh, for me the getting into ultra running is about getting out to the mountains i mean we were just talking before like you've got the um the pyrenees right on your doorstep and just being able to go up and it's like that for me is what it's about running 6.7 kilometer loops for four and a half days i mean it's just very different right it's just it's yeah, just yeah. seeing what potential human endurance can you know what it can achieve but um 
yeah i i i just wonder what the recovery is going to be like from that kind of effort um i i, I yeah i mean harvey lewis has been doing it for years so i mean he's still be going at his age is uh is impressive and i don't yeah, know if, like if you watch any of the videos on, but ehaw was the like bed. there chatting away he was like standing up chatting and i'm like why are you not collapsed at this point but he's uh yeah yeah, I think Harvey's on like some long running streak, so I'm sure he probably got back out there the next day, make sure he didn't miss a miss a beat. But but yeah, all good stuff to be following, mate. It's been so fun watching it all. Um, yeah. Congrats again on your race win. Um, and then Thanks we've got we've got some fun, we've got some more fun guests lined up soon. So looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Um, really, um, yeah, really good to catch up, mate. And uh, yeah, we're kind of hitting a bit of a, a penultimate bit in the race season. We've got the um asia trail masters and then you've got we've got doi in thailand there's um there's uh the translands how coming up um in the next couple of weeks as well so there's some uh some good stuff going on um yeah nice one always a pleasure sir let's uh let's catch up again soon likewise mate good to talk to you thanks a lot it's like the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad